0: Welcome to I'm a Writer But! Today my guest is S. L. Weisenberg. S. L. Weisenberg is editor of another Chicago magazine and author of the fiction collection The Sweetheart Is In, and two nonfiction books, Holocaust Girls History, Memory, and Other Obsessions, and The Adventures of Cancer Bitch. The recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Holocaust Education Foundation, and the Illinois Arts Council, Weisenberg works as a writing coach, editor, and creative writing instructor in Chicago. Her new book is *The Wandering Womb: Essays in Search of Home*, which was the recipient of the Juniper Prize for Creative Nonfiction and was published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Welcome, Sandy.
1: Hi, I'm so happy to be here, Lindsay.
0: Yeah, this is awesome. I absolutely loved your book. I felt like, um, like on every page, I felt like going hell yes, because you're saying things in here that I feel like people aren't saying enough, um, and it felt really, really um exciting to me as i was reading so i'm so excited to talk to you about about this book and about your career and and about all kinds of things yeah me too before we get started i would love to hear you read from from your new book from the wandering womb
1: okay i'm going to read from the title essay and um i have little um subtitles so that's what I'll be reading before I read each um, section. Awesome. Hystericos. If women are troubled in mind or body, the Cahoon Gynecological Papyrus, circa 1820 BCE, advises its readers, look to the wandering womb. In the fourth century BCE, Hippocratic physicians wrote that women who were ill might be plagued by a wander lustful womb which had loosened itself from its mysterious moorings to cause trouble in the parts of the body where it had set up shop. If the womb strayed into the head, it would cause headaches. If it sat in a woman's chest, it could cause near suffocation. A misplaced womb could steal breath, bind up a throat, make everything difficult, give it a child and it will be happy. Sometimes treatment was performed via the orifices. Affected women would be given something foul-smelling to breathe so that the womb would be repulsed, would hightail it back down where it belonged. Another treatment was to expose the vulva to something pleasant-smelling to lure the womb down to its rightful place, the way a woman incites a lover with sweet perfumes. Intercourse was proposed as a cure. After all, the womb longed to be of use. It wanted to be a nest. In the age before dissection, men could not divide its mysteries. The womb, said Plato, is a wild animal. The womb, according to physician Arataeus, the Cappadocian, four centuries later, is like some animal inside an animal. The Greek hystera hystera means uterus, womb. Hystericos equals hysteric, coming from the womb, suffering caused by the womb, muff, beaver, pussy bowl i cannot imagine how surgeons remove the uterus because it is an embedded bowl or pear as it is referred to in much of the literature about hysterectomies the womb as animal as martin say weasel ferret it pokes its nose into corners and burrows looking for a child to carry it holds an empty bowl or it is transformed from animal to bowl, looking like the fur-lined teacup created by a surrealist. The womb as empty bowl, like a beggar's bowl. The beggar's bowl is mostly a man's bowl, a monk's bowl, or tool, equivalent to a shovel, perhaps, because it is with a bowl that he earns his daily bread. The beggar's bowl is a symbolic and a real bowl, it is philosophical, so it deserves mention. It deserves not to be put out into the street. A beggar's bowl is what the monk or nun takes out empty each morning. They start anew with hope and prayers. The bowl reminds the monk that all must be asked for, all must be given. The monk or nun asks for sustenance, they ask for enough. The person who gives enough. Or part of enough is blessed. The Torah tells Jews to leave the corners of their fields unharvested so that the poor could gather wheat for themselves. Are we blessed on the nights that we leave our bags of restaurant leftovers on the top of the dumpster so that they're easier for the homeless people to reach? Each morning, the begging bowl shines with waiting. If you are a monk, you are confident. The universe will provide. In a film on the largest prison in India, I saw inmates learning Vipassana meditation en masse. They emerged from their 10 days silence, cleansed, quiet, humble, finally willing to admit that they had harmed society, that it had not done them wrong. In this prison, population 10,000, in suburban New Delhi, a pickpocket can wait six years for his case to come to trial knowing that the sentence for his crime is only one year. 10% of the inmates are convicts. The others are awaiting trial. The film's narrator makes a statement about the slow wheels of justice in India, as if the slowness were just. The prisoners tell the camera, this was meant to be. With Vipassana, I no longer have revenge in my heart. This is what I was looking for. I was put here for a reason. The teacup, Lunch in Fur, was made by Merritt Oppenheim in 1936, entitled by André Breton. Oppenheim used the pelt of a Chinese gazelle to cover a dime store cup, saucer, and spoon. It brought her fame. Many years later, she hosted a small dinner party performance, during which guests ate a meal from the body of a nude woman lying on a table. Thus, the body was a table on a table, but unlike a table, the woman was able to partake of the meal along with the guests. We all feast on the female body at least once. The gazelle eats only grasses. It tries to outrun hunters. It is known for its gracefulness and for being endangered.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks. And for those who haven't read that piece yet, um, it goes on and circles back and um, is just quite striking uh, in its structure and in its themes. And and even in that moment at the end of Bowl, um, when you bring up the gazelle um, who eats only grasses but is known for its its grace, it's just the emotions that this piece and this book stirred up in me. I, I don't even know how to name them which I love when that happens. I love when I'm reading something and I don't exactly know. I don't exactly know how to say it in words, what's happening inside me. And I think that because then it stays with you, right? Like you keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And I'm just so in awe of you. Um, oh. I want to hear from you, you know, it, it says <laughs> in your acknowledgements that it it took a long time. You know, you, you wrote these over a long time, long period of time. I want to hear from you you know, when you knew I'm going to make a book out of these pieces and, and, you know, how these pieces came to be. And I know that's a huge question that covers a lot of time, but just in general, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about putting this book together.
1: Somebody said to me, Oh, did you just put a bunch of your old essays together? (laughs) And, and like, I was very irate. Wow, well, that's just sounds like I just slapped things together. But in Is a way, this your blog, Sandy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, actually I wrote a book from my blog. So Well, there you go. <laughs> You've already <laughs> done it's it. Bitch. But I worked hard on that. Um, so in a way I did, you know, I was thinking I have a lot of essays. Let me put them together. Let's see what which ones to choose. Um, let's see how to put them together. Let's see what what they turn into. And so I had to make decisions, what to include, what not to include. Um, I had an essay about eating and dieting. And in a way, I think of it as a companion piece to a piece I have on sleep in here, Mm -hmm. but I thought it might be too much the same in a way, because it was about eating too much. And the other piece was about sleeping, not enough. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'll just choose one. And I would have had to um, update it a lot with the new diets, which are really the old diets. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) But um, because there was sort of a paleo diet that wasn't called paleo. What was it? I don't remember. Okay.
0: Because my mom had us on all the diets back in the 80s. Really? Um, so I it's, why? It's nostalgic for me to revisit those. Oh, because you know, um parents of that generation didn't want their kids to be fat.
1: My mother and her friends were always running into somebody in the supermarket who had lost 20 pounds on weight watchers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. always what it was. Yeah, I was I was at first I wanted to diet because that's what the older kids were doing and so it was cool. Right. I just did it cuz it seemed fun and then when it came time to do it I thought I wanted to lose weight then it became harder but so I didn't didn't have that in there um and I um I came across the idea I suppose of feeling at home and feeling not at home feeling not at home in the world mm-hmm. feeling not at home in my body mm. um feeling like a stranger traveling. And um, so I decided that there was something to do with home. Mm -hmm. And so the first piece is about traveling Mm -hmm. and staying in someone's home, but not knowing them very well. And so I didn't know what to do with my tampons because this is, it was in Vienna and I didn't know what their um, sewer system was Mm -hmm. like or Um, wastewater system so I didn't know if they could handle tampons and um, so I was carrying them around with me and then throwing them into the city trash baskets on the street and then finally um, I found the perfect place to throw them away which was in Freud's bathroom. I love that part. The Freud Freud Museum. Oh my gosh. So that is about looking for home and trying to feel at home in Vienna, though my friend was trying to show me all the tourist things and I wanted to do some Jewish history research. And so I felt like I'm doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking to him about world war two and he's tired of world war II being thrust into his face from elementary school onward. And so just being at odds and, um, Finally, towards the end, I actually buy a home with my husband, and um, I think one of the signs of having a home is that you can provide hospitality, and I've always liked the Catholic workers, which they have houses of hospitality, which basically it's a house where the volunteers live, and they open it up to people who need a place to stay, and they say, thank you, for giving us the chance to provide hospitality oh wow and yeah i think that's so nice and i've stayed at a couple of them and i think once you have your own place you can offer it to people and um we're able to do that and i have a piece later on about um wanting to monetize the Cubs. It was when the Cubs were in the World Series Mm -hmm. and we were thinking, okay, we can charge a lot for people to stay in our basement. And then we realized, we looked online at Airbnb and it looked like nobody was really taking up Airbnb Mm -hmm. um, places. They were not renting Airbnb around the field because if they had the money to go to the world series, they were play- staying in a fancy hotel. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we weren't going to make a killing. So we just let people we knew and friends of friends stay in our place. And that's what we do. We just had people here for a week. Um, my husband had a um, reunion of his communards. He was in a commune in Anvil, Illinois, many years ago and um, for how long about a year or two I love it yeah it was a big house and he and his first wife were were there and with some other people and doing social justice work
0: so what was it like when you were going back and you you know you were finding this theme of not feeling at home or trying to find home and you're revisiting all these pieces that that you've written what was it like diving back into them
1: Well, it's two opposite things. On the one hand, I would think, oh, wow, this is really good. And then on the other hand, I was like, oh, God, this is terrible. You know, I just kept going back and forth. And so I I love the opportunity to revise. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you feel that. I, you know,
0: when I was a younger writer, and I had a larger chip on my shoulder, I hated it. I resented Mm. it. And now that I have... um, welcomed so much more humility and patience into my life that now that the time I have to write is so much less, I absolutely revel in revision. It's so comforting.
1: Yeah. It's like giving a, being given another chance. Yes, exactly. I have learned. I have grown. <laughs> yeah, I can make this better. And even when I'm doing readings, mm-hmm. now I'm like, oh gosh, why didn't I add a little sentence right here, you know, to uh, explain, or, um, oh, no, I, so you can still revise when you're reading. Mm-hmm, out loud. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one nice thing, too. Um, so what what I noticed with one of the earlier pieces, it was about going to Costa Rica with a boyfriend. And, um wondering why we were there, which I think is a constant in my life. Why are we here? And uh, I noticed I had so many similes and metaphors. And I think it's because I was reading Mary McCarthy and she has so many similes and metaphors. (laughs) And I thought, wow, why, why do I have all these? And I don't remember if I refined them or if I got rid of some Um, I I remember working a lot with the ending Mm -hmm. of that piece um, for this book. Um, I also have a new, I have a couple new pieces in here. Um, The newest piece is Grandmother Russia Selma, Mm -hmm. which I'm looking at the table of contents. It's 24 printed pages. And it was just um,
0: wandering womb, isn't it? Yeah. It's the one right oh, after Wandering Womb? Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Very good. And it just contained everything. And it's about, for some reason, at the beginning of the pandemic, I'm just imagining the map of Russia mm-hmm. and that it's like big and white or gray and undifferentiated. And, and this was before um, the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I was realizing maybe I'm thinking of Russia because that's unlimited space almost. And we're in this unlimited time because we don't know how long lockdown is going to um, last. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Russia kept changing its borders um, in the czar's time. It was maybe similar to the Soviet union, probably smaller But that was when my um, grandmother and great-grandparents and other grandmother came over. So you talk to Jews and they'll say, oh, I know where my family's from. And you go, where? Russia. And like Russia could include Poland, Lithuania, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, Galicia, which is not the Galicia in Spain. um, Ukraine. Because everything was called Russia. And mm-hmm. when my grandfather came to this country, he had to declare that he was no longer loyal to the czar of all the Russians. Wow. Which he was never loyal to him because the the, <laughs> the czar's army liked to um, draft the Jews and then they would, you know, make their life miserable in the army. Mm hmm. There's a story that my great uncle or great, great uncle was in the army. And then he came home. He deserted. And his mother said, what are you doing? Why did you come home? They're going to look for you here. So he went to South America. And then he went to Mississippi. And so I don't know exactly exactly all the thinking that went into that Mississippi,
0: but i know a, oh my gosh
1: but a lot of lithuanian jews went to south africa there's a reason for it but i forgot what that is wow i mean of all the places to end up yes <laughs> maybe
0: it's like i have to be i have to hide <laughs> i have to go really far away yeah, yes somewhere totally unexpected yes so when and- you're sitting down to write these, you know, again, this is a big question because these essays span a lot of time, including up to the present. Where do these, I, you know, like, where does an idea come from for you?
1: How do you know, like, I need to write about this? Maybe it's like a little bee in my head, mm-hmm. which is not a bee in my bonnet, but <laughs> bee in my head that is just like some words or a thought or an image. Um you know, I've been wanting to write about Mrs. Mazel, the marvelous Mrs. Mazel, for a long time, but it's like, what can I say? And I have one idea, but that doesn't make an essay. And then, <laughs> so it's been in my head for a few years. And then yesterday I just started writing about how I was a stand up comic for 10 minutes in grad school. Oh and, my gosh. <laughs> um, and when I was getting ready to read, the other day, I was hearing somebody else's voice in my head, and I realized it was Rachel Brosnahan as Midge Maisel oh my that gosh. I was sort of channeling her. And it's like, yeah, I want to be a stand-up comic. I want to be an improvisator, imp- improviser. Yeah, that would. That's I think that's word. right. Yeah, improviser. I want to do all these things, and I haven't taken a class, and. But I can use some of this when I do my readings. So that's just an example and things just sort of start piling up. I don't know if that's going to turn out into anything. Um, But you're sitting down and you're writing
0: scraps of thoughts and and then hoping later that they cohere or just sort of letting them cohere if they if they do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And with, um, the wandering womb, um, it was like a collage. I was, I was at Berkeley and there's this wonderful thing that the government does called the national endowment for the humanities, Mm -hmm. summer seminars for college teachers. And they have one for school teachers and it's basically free summer school Wow! and on different topics and they pay you to go. And, I accidentally found out about one in Berkeley and I went and I've, I've done a few of these and they used to have some that were overseas, but Jeff Sessions thought it was terrible. So they don't. I saw that in your acknowledgement. I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah. But the Berkeley one was great. It was about the Weimar Republic in Germany. And I was just wandering around the libraries of the campus and I saw I think in the psychology library or the philosophy library, there were there were the journals um, just sitting out. And one was about the wandering womb, and I just started reading it. And I probably Xeroxed it and made a file. And then every time something's interesting to me, I will take notes or xerox it and i still have paper files and i and people tell me oh you need to put this on a disc or you need to just scan everything but i i like being able to go in and physically handle Mm -hmm. the file Mm -hmm. and um as i wrote this i just added more and more things that i knew about and i i i was very interested in freud not so much his theories but his biography and the gossip. Like I love historical gossip. Like was he having an affair with his sister-in-law or not? Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in Anna O., who was the first case study in um, Freud and Boyer's case studies on hysteria. And she's very interesting because later in life, she became an activist and was fighting prostitution among Jews, which he called sublimation, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. And, and you had to have separate women's group. There was a Protestant women's group against prostitution. There was a Catholic women's group against prostitution. And, um, and she had a, um, a school for wayward girls. Mm -hmm. And this was, no oblige, because she was upper middle class and mm-hmm. she was trying to help these these girls who were on the streets or about to be on the streets. And they learned, they did learn trades. So it was a pretty good thing.
0: With an essay like that, which is so um uniquely structured, um, you know, you you've referred to it as kind of writing what else you knew about. Mm-hmm that subject how how did you know okay this essay is complete i have said what i wanted to say
1: i don't know it just feels like it and i've got a writing group
0: i and... want to talk about that writing group okay um but no finish your finish your thought first
1: um maybe it just kind of settles in mm-hmm. and you you kind of you do what you do Maybe when you're studying literature, you look at what are the themes? Does the beginning have something to do with the end? Um, Are there tensions at the beginning that are somehow worked out by the end? Mm -hmm. Or not, right? Or not, because I was just looking at one of my other essays in here, and I thought, hmm, I don't think I really answer (laughs) the first paragraph and I think that's Mm -hmm. that can be so exciting I think
0: um for a writer and a reader you know you end um the wandering room correct me if I'm wrong but it ends with um you know when she's thinking about this when Anna or Bertha is thinking about this girl that she was trying to help what is she imagining Mm -hmm. and you sort of you sort of try to imagine what she could have imagined Mm -hmm. which to me feels so much more of a of a passing of the baton than it does, uh, like finishing the race. Um, mm. and I I'm so excited by that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think when I think about like my feeling when something of mine is done is not so much like, Oh yes, res- resolution, but more, um, there's still something here. Like I haven't, like you're saying there, the questions aren't all answered. I'm just asking them. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, you have such a, like a, a wonderful, you know, the customer sperm unthinkingly swimming toward the womb as if the survival of the very species depended on it, which is, if you've read the essay, you just go, ah, (laughs) yes. Um, So, I mean, you're, there is resolution here. There is uh, an ending, you know, that in terms of like form satisfies, but there is also so much, there's so much. Um, there for the reader to mine for him or herself. Um, I'm just fascinated with, by that kind of, that kind of structure, that kind of ending.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I, when I'm just thinking back on this, this is a very Berkeley piece because I did go to see this film about this prison in India where they're learning, they learned Vipassana um, meditation and even as I was reading it, I was thinking, hmm, as I was reading it just now to you, I was thinking, wow, did that really fit in there? It <laughs> sort of fits in because we have the monk and the nun, but mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't quite, but okay, it's there. And um, I have something about the dogs of Berkeley and this guy who um, was Imogen Cunningham's grandson. And um, I think I have Michael Shabon's. Um, kids in the grocery store. They yes. go to well, so. where they have yeah. a tab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's a lot of Berkeley stuff. Berkeley and um and Austria, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and I had some. You know, I've done a lot of research. I um. You know, I knew about Freud and he thought that women who who knitted were trying to cover up their pubic hair. And I knew about Salonika because um, Kurt Waldheim, um, the politician in Austria who claimed he was not a Nazi, he uh, took part in the destruction of Salonika's Jews. Mm. So... um, so just one thing leads to another. And it's like anyone, everyone does this. Like now with the internet, you just go on and on and on and on and on. And so the trick is trying to corral everything Mm -hmm. and to make it finite Mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. Because just as the alphabet is infinite and you can just put any number of words, excuse me, you can put any number of words together. On the internet, there's everything in the world and you can look up anything. Rabbit hole, and, rabbit hole. Oh gosh. And the trick is stopping yourself and just taking what, what matches or what's important.
2: They
1: mm-hmm. also make collages and I take Images that I like, and and I put them together, and there you have um, a piece of paper or a piece of cardboard, and that is your limit. Right, you can't go beyond that. Have
0: you always made collages?
1: It was a a little folklore activity that we did as girls. I mean, the other activity was we made chains out of um gum wrappers yes do you remember that that. oh yes (laughs) (laughs) and like I think that's really folklore because nobody formally teaches you it's just like you learn it from an older girl Mm -hmm. and we would just make collages for our friends for like a birthday or something
0: and and you still you keep up that practice now
1: Yeah. Sometimes it it can, yeah, it can be calming. Yeah. Is it getting, um, is it a way
0: to express something that you haven't been able to express in words? Is it feeding your
1: writing in a way? Hmm. I don't know if it feeds my writing. Maybe it calms me because unlike writing, which is infinite that this is a finite Um, practice. I mean, it's a finite medium because again, of the the square or the rectangle, though sometimes if I don't like what I've done, I go, I put more things on top of it.
0: I was going to say it's finite at the edges, but not as it grows up, right? (laughs) Right. It can be really thick. (laughs) Did you encounter any selves that you had forgotten as you were going through these essays and assembling this book?
1: Any selves I had forgotten or any um, selves that surprised you? Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Um, I don't know if I had forgotten, but, um, I guess in younger men, older men, it was my dating self. And once you have a partner for a while, you forget about that. Mm -hmm. And you forget, again, this is the infinite pool Mm -hmm. or the (laughs) uninfinite pool, the finite pool, um, where there were parties. Mm -hmm. You would go to parties and you you had no idea what would happen. You know that feeling?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And your whole life
1: could change. Yep. You
0: thought that it would. I remember thinking that. I remember thinking tonight's the night that something's going to happen that
1: will change the rest of my life. Right. And I met this guy that I went to Costa Rica with because I could not find parking on a Saturday night in my neighborhood. And so I thought, oh, I'll go ahead and go to this party in Uptown that I was invited to, but though I didn't really know the person very well who was having it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so then I met him. It's crazy.
0: I mean, I feel like the changes never really happened for me. (laughs) (laughs) I think I had too high of an expectation. (laughs) But yeah, it's like a way of leaving yourself open to those possibilities, which I feel like is such a for a lot of reasons, it's such a, a thing that is for youth or that can be for youth. Um, maybe but it's I'm speaking all- from a place of motherhood right now.
1: <laughs> right. But I think it's also travel. Mm-hmm. Like, es- especially before the internet, when you did, you could get lost mm-hmm. and people could tell you how to get somewhere and you could stand on a street corner with this big map. It was flopping around <laughs> and you could encounter something. Um, and I think also journalism, I was working on a book that didn't come to fruition, but I used some of it in grandmother, Russia, Selma. Mm. I was spending time in Alabama and I would make myself talk to people. How did you make yourself do that? How? Mm-hmm.
0: What was your tactic?
1: I think I would just bully myself. <laughs> this guy looks really weird and interesting. Talk to him. You have to take him. And and I remember I was in Montgomery at this cafe, which the, this guy who worked there said it's the cafe that reminds people of the ca- cafe they like at the, at the place they're from. Oh wow! It was across the street from an art movie theater, and I started talking to this guy, who was he turned out he was an antique seller, and then these two young women started talking to us, and and they one of them saw Aras. And she could see George Wallace's aura or something. Mm-hmm. And she had been vaguely related to him. And we almost decided to go sneak inside this abandoned mental institution. Oh. But I was teaching for a semester at the <laughs> University of Alabama. And I thought, oh, God, I wouldn't want to be caught. Um, but there is this moment of, of, possibility and new people. And I think we've really lost that with, um, lockdown and pandemic and phones. Yeah. And phones. It's, it's, it's really hard to confront
0: a face, right? Cause you're used to looking at it. I'm not saying you, I'm saying the universal you mm-hmm. on a phone or on a screen. Um, so yeah, that, that feels, that feels of a time, right? Like that feel that definitely feels like a period piece right when stuff like that is is mm-hmm. possible
1: but what about podcasts because there has been a tendency for interviews to take place over email I hate that and yet there's this this hunger for the spontaneous conversation right
0: right I hate the pre. the the five to 10 questions. And so then the author answers those in the email format. And there's no like, Hey, there's actually like a really juicy part in this answer that needed a follow-up. But because of this format, we don't, we don't get the follow-up, right? Like we don't get the natural probing. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. On the other hand, I'm grateful for that because it's better than nothing. That's true. That is true. But it's a different form than this talking. And when I was in high school, we had a very serious drama teacher and she said, when people are inarticulate, it's because they're thinking and they're not giving you the polished answer. Mm. And that's similar to what Anna DeVere Smith says when she's interviewing people, she wait, waits for the language to break down. Wow.
0: I mean that's definitely something I have to fight myself cuz I we've all been trained to fear the awkward silence. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And so as an interviewer, I think there's there's quiet, there's quiet. I should I should say something. And I've been working on not doing that because it's exactly as you say that's when they're thinking and when they're, you know, gonna start speaking. Um
1: that's when the the magic happens. Yeah. And as you interview people who've been interviewed a lot, your task is to break through any sort of um, practiced response. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I hear those. um, I listen to political podcasts from time to time and they'll, they'll interview elected politicians and they, everything is a scripted answer. And I, I know that it can get that like that when you've been talking about your book or what you've, you know, what you've made, you know, you've been answering the same questions over and over and over again. So it is exactly like you say, it's, it's trying to get around those things, trying to get to the person inside, you know, the person who made this.
1: And the me, I think media training is to, um, have your message. Stay on your message. Mm-hmm. Have your answer that you can give to any question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That, like, you know, you want to say X, and so if they ask you why, you learn to make a little bridge mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> to the thing you want to say. Not that I've had this, but I've I've seen it in people,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: in some ways, um, you know, that's that's good if you are pushing. Um, a particular view or you're a candidate Mm -hmm. and you want to say something you want you have your message you want to keep on message right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and going back to Anna Devere Smith she interviewed um oh gosh again this is Berkeley um Chez Panisse the the founder of Chez Panisse who Who um it was a it was a very um very farm to table restaurant mm-hmm. in Berkeley and supposedly... Is it Eric repair?
0: Eric repair? Is that no. It no
1: it's a woman. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we could spend five minutes trying to figure this out or <laughs> on our phones, but we're not going to. And um she was asked about um, serving um, Bill Clinton, and she talked about how she wanted to get a ripe pe- a ripe peach for him. <laughs> wow!
0: And it was interesting. Um, that it was her way of getting to the person
1: inside him. No, it was she um, the, the woman at Chez Panisse, she wanted to, to give him something perfect. Oh my gosh. Wow. And so she wanted to give him a perfect white peach. I don't know if there's sexual connotations to that <laughs> <laughs> or if she meant them if there were, but that's, that's an image that I remember.
0: Alice waters. That's who it is. Alice
1: waters. Did you look that up? I just looked it up. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the thing is, and again, I, I've heard Anna DeVere Smith speak a couple of times and she usually goes to a crisis area and talks to everybody like South Central LA. She talked to Koreans and blacks and whites. And, um, she said when she went to Washington to interview people, she just had a brick wall because people were afraid. Wow. They were so used to the talking points yes oh my
0: gosh it feels like there's a hunger for us to move away from just talking points and i in some ways i feel like that's why someone like donald trump was successful because Uh he is a horrible disgusting void of a human but he didn't have that polish that people tend to not listen to
1: anymore um I don't know. I totally agree. And I think, I think there's even something appealing about his voice. I have to admit. Because it's not perfect. Yeah. And it's, it's got emotion in it. And, um, it's got humor. It's a very evil humor.
0: Right. But it's there.
1: Yeah. I think people hate
0: admitting that he is funny. Um, but he is mhm, um, and maybe that's a way <laughs> to find common ground with his supporters. It's just people looking for a human voice. We can understand that
1: <laughs> well, it's the same thing with Bernie Sanders, mhm, yeah, that's a good point, yes, people wanted something genuine, yes, he is genuine he He dresses like a vermonter, yes. He's grouchy sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And he's got emotion and he doesn't seem refined. Yeah. That's a good point.
0: I think that to bring it back to your book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's see this segue from here's my bridge. Um, (laughs) I think that's kind of what I was trying to say in a less eloquent way than you just said of what I love about a lot of these essays is there is still a rawness there. They have been, you know, they're older, they've been looked at again and again and revised, you know, to be put into this book, but there's still that pure, raw humanity in them. That's Mm. what I think I was trying to say. There's like that friction there that is so appealing to, um, well, to a reader like me, do it, but but a lot of readers. Um, and I think that's what I was trying to ask you: is they have not been refined down to, they have not been polished so much that there isn't still these wonderful facets. I keep, I, I'm just going to keep going with this metaphor of polishing.
1: <laughs> okay, diamond. Yes, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yes. yes. Um, I I think I try to look for the emotion and like, what is the real thing going on? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it's from being in therapy a lot. You're just trying to figure out what is the thing? Mm -hmm. What is the deep feeling? Mm -hmm. Um, What am I afraid of?
0: When you say, say that to yourself, what am I afraid of? What how does that affect your writing?
1: How does it affect my writing? Maybe the writing is a voyage to that emotion mm-hmm. and then exploring that emotion and what brings me to it.
0: Yeah yeah i'm I'm just thinking of um I've been trying to help my ten year old locate his emotions in his body mm. well to to first understand that these are emotions and name them, but then also mm-hmm. where are you feeling it in your body and um and recently he wasn't he was like so upset he was so upset about something and and he didn't want to say it out loud he just couldn't say it out loud, so I had him write it down and i mean it was very simple things not to you know, blow up his privacy or anything, but they were very Mm -hmm. simple things that he was upset about. I was expecting like, you know, uh, huge identity things. And they were very like, one example was I didn't get to hear the song I wanted in
2: the car Mm -hmm. right home,
0: but he's 10. So these are, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and it reminds me of the work that, that you're just talking about doing. What am I afraid of? Let's find out by writing it down, by starting to write or you know, whatever you're doing to get to that answer collaging, writing scraps, writing more questions um, as a way of locating that
1: thing that you haven't been able to name yet. Yeah. And not listening to your song could be, I don't have control. I don't matter. um, No one pays attention to me. Yes, exactly. My parents like him or her better or. Yep. They don't care about me, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: whatever. And we all feel that. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Especially control. Um, My husband and I had this problem with sponges around the sink. He always squeezed them out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why do you always squeeze them out? Because he would say, you need to squeeze them out. And he said, you have to squeeze them out so they don't get moldy and once there was something rational it became easier <laughs> even though I still kind of resent it I, I I spent all this time not squeezing them out um were you not squeezing them out so they never got dried up I guess I don't know what the feeling or the rationale was
0: but then once he explained that there was an actual reason and he wasn't just saying it because he it was his way of doing things right um, then it became easier yeah yeah it became i totally easier. get that
1: yes absolutely
0: yeah. i mean yeah. there's
1: so much about control that causes conflict mhm i think large and small um I mean, even with Russia and Ukraine, you know, Putin wants to control. And I don't know if you can, if it's too easy to do a little psycho bio with him. Probably it is too
0: easy. I have considered that as well, where you just kind of pretend like, hey, you won. (laughs) Right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you won. But then, you know, really... He didn't? Yeah. I don't know. I I, I think he likes causing havoc and pain. Hmm. Because it
1: makes him seem tough and scary. Yeah. But I think he also has this sense of himself as a czar, the czar of all the Russians. Mm-hmm. And this is my glorious territory. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think we all identify with kings and queens and princes and princesses, right? Or at least when you're little,
0: you do. You mean wanting absolute control over your surroundings
1: and... Maybe Hmm. not. Maybe that. But I was thinking of the stories that we read when you're little there was a prince mm-hmm. there was a king who had a beautiful daughter mm-hmm. um people are still interested in coronation even though i think they were less interested in prince charles mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it was on the top of the new
0: york times mm-hmm. all day long and i could i was like why <laughs> why but people care they're interested mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think for my kids, it's um, bad guys, bad guys and good guys. I yes. It's a similar, like, sort of black and white view of the world. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But if you think of Grimm's fairy tales, it's most, it's either peasants or royalty. That's true. They're very few people in between. Mm-hmm. And the peasant is going To the castle for some reason. Or the king is passing by for some reason. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, speaking of queens, let's talk about Mm -hmm. your writing group. Okay. Because it's filled with amazing writers. Uh Rosellen Brown, who was my professor at the Art Institute. Oh. I absolutely love her. I think about her advice to me and her classes all the time. Um. She's an amazing writer.
1: What was her advice?
0: Well, so I took um, a memoir class with her and I took a Chicago class with her. So um, we learned a lot Mm. about the literary history of Chicago and just Chicago in general. And um, she's very pragmatic. She's very, um, well, I guess I'm thinking specifically of she was one of my uh, thesis readers and (laughs) I had this novel that I had been trudging along on the whole time I was in grad school and then toward near the end of grad school, in part because of her influence, I sort of broke free of it and started writing what I wanted to write. Mm. Um, and she said to me after she had read my thesis, yeah, I really love, you know, the the stories that you had in there, which were the newer pieces. But that other thing, that novel, that that drudgery, just mm-hmm. forget about that. She knew she saw it. She, you know, and, and I trusted her so much. Um, and she had, you know, she had said wonderful things about other things of mine that she had read. Um, but she was was able to level with me and be honest with me about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just always appreciate that. And not, not to mention that, you know, I read so many wonderful things because of her. Um, you know, I read speak memory because of her, Mm -hmm. um, I read, you know, just so many wonderful books because of her. Um, but I just, I really just, I love her writing. I love her, her way of being a professor. Her way of, you know, reading her students, and um, yeah. Just please tell her I said hi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell her to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll tell her hi. Yeah, and it was amazing too that she'd been. She's been writing mostly contemporary work. And then she has this historical novel. I haven't read it. That came out a few years ago. Yeah, I haven't read Um, it yet. Yeah, and it was very convincing. It sounded very convincing about the World's Fair and these um, immigrants and just what the crowds of people were doing. Um, And she always says, like, if you're rating historical fiction, read The novels of that time see she's just full of good advice yes
0: (laughs) she's absolutely right
1: yeah 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 I've been writing somehow I've been writing historical short stories and um I've been reading novels from that time and I'm reading a memoir now from that time yeah wow Just finding out that during World War One in Germany, um, people would eat would drink skim milk and artificial honey. During World War One, they would mix those together. No, they they would. That's what you would have to buy. That was the only thing that was available instead of regular milk and real honey. And I can't imagine what artificial honey is.
0: Um, and the rumor, because this is in your essay, the rumor is that the Jewish people were getting whole milk.
1: Oh yeah, this is a different thing. Yeah, this is, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, I was shocked to to find out, and maybe I wasn't really shocked. After the war, there was still public opinion in Austria that the Jews are getting the soft life now. <laughs> You know, they've been through all this and then they're they're settling as refugees and we think they're getting regular milk instead of powdered milk. And we think something still needs to be done about them. Oh my gosh. Maybe not murder all of them, but something.
0: Oh, Oh. I mean, it's similar to uh, how blacks are treated in America, right? Well, now they have oh, their yeah. rights. Now they're going to try to oppress us, you know?
1: Right. Right. Um, and Ronald Reagan with his welfare queens. and Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. All those racist tropes. And the young buck. Mm-hmm. He spoke about the young buck in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to say that. Racism ended with Ronald Reagan. I'm just saying that (laughs) those are mine.
0: (laughs) Well, Sandy, this has been an absolute pleasure. I loved The Wandering Womb. It's out now. People can get it now. Yes. It won the Juniper Prize, which congratulations. Thank you. The Juniper Prize for Creative Nonfiction. Um, Everyone go get this book. Read it. It's we didn't even get to talk about all the periods in the book, which is one of my favorite things.
1: Oh. <laughs> the menstruation in the book. Oh, those periods, right? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know if it was like periods of time. Yes. Or punctuation. Yeah. Punctuation, right. <laughs> Instead of semicolons. Yes. No, I mean you're you're so fun to listen to. And so it's so nice to talk to you. Thank you again, Sandy. Everyone go get the wandering womb and can't wait to and- see what's next. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much.